BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Welcome along to the podcast. Oh, it's nice to be back. Um, how are you, Clarice? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thanks very much. I'm very well indeed. Um, I've got a choice for you uh, of what you want to talk about first before we fire into the show. This is just additional correspondence that's come in. Uh, one is entitled Health Information, the other being Bill Nye Spotting. Which would you rather cover first? I'm scared of the health information, so let's ease it in. Let's ease it in with Bill Nye. Can I say before we do this, because I love a bit of celeb spotting, this week I had a great celeb spot and a great celeb verbal diarrhoea spewing in their face incident. Uh, I'll tell you about it after these emails. Dear female contenders... Ready! Uh, on last week's show, we had a letter from a listener who had been given a lift off the one and only Bill Nye while seemingly out of his comfort zone in Leeds and looking for a hotel in Tong. Well, this is where I believe I can contribute to the story. I think this event may have actually taken place nearly 20 years ago and not 10, as the last correspondence mentioned. Around 20 years ago, I was attending a fellow sixth former's 18th birthday. The party was in Tong, of all places. I turned up at the party slightly late, having been at Flamingoland with my family all day. I want to go at Flamingoland. When I got there, I headed to the bar and ordered a pint. A guy at the bar said, hello, to me, and asked how I was. Yeah, just fine, I only just got here. I've been at Flamingoland all day, I replied. <laughs> I just received a chuckle <laughs> and a cool. I got my pint, went and sat down with my friends who were all randomly excited. I wondered what was going on and then found out they were all excited by the fact that the guy at the bar... I had just been talking to was none other than Josh Hartnett. Apparently, he knew the brother of the girl whose 18th party it was through an acting school in America. Josh was in England to film a film in Yorkshire, Blow Dry, the hairdressing comedy starring Bill Nye. So Hartnett's awful Yorkshire accent in the film, which is stated on IMDb's as being the one accent he struggled with the most, is clearly influenced by me, telling a short tale of going to Flamingoland. Hello to Jason, Josh and indeed Bill, David Woolen in Leeds. I, love, I imagine Josh Hartnett is sitting in front of the mirror just repeating Flamingoland yeah. over and over again. <laughs> With a Yorkshire accent. <laughs> not even going to try it. I was yeah, about I was, to try and yeah. do one right there. And I am not going to do it. Um, here we go. Uh, dear Bolo. Uh, see what they did there? Bowman. It should oh. be Bolo. Law. It should be Law. Bolo's good. Bolo's okay. okay. Bill. Boloch. Boloch. It should be Boloch. Boloch. Not a lot of people can do the ch. That's the thing, you see. Yeah. You can't really do it. Uh, yeah. You can't? Boloch. How do you say your surname then? Just Lockery. Lockery. It's been Americanized enough. Okay. It's... So you see like Loch Ness then? Yeah. I'm sorry. Unbelievable. <laughs> Bolock. Bolock's good. Ooh, we could be like the new Hobbs and Shaw. Bolock. Bolock. Female detective duo. I love it. Um, can we get a theme tune please for the next time we're doing the show? Brilliant. Uh, Bill Nye is regularly spotted whilst out walking by members of the church. I think I'm the one of the few people who haven't spotted him. So, if you could arrange for him to be walking down Grey Street in Newcastle at 4.35pm tomorrow, that would be much appreciated. Regards, James. 
P.S. Does Mr. Nye have a Fitbit? If so, the next time he's on the show, could you ask him how many steps he does per day? He seems to walk everywhere. P.P.S. Edith and Clarice are back in charge and always temporarily right in the world. Oh, thank you, Jay Patson. Um, two quick things for that. When you say tomorrow, do you mean tomorrow from when you wrote the email? And this depends whenever who's listening to this podcast, whether or not tomorrow is in fact the tomorrow that you mean or not. Mm, so it's every day for the next every month. Every day for the next month. My... Yeah, basically. My spots this week then, Ken Loach coming out of pret a on Wardour Street in London. Nearly wow. fell off the pavement. Me, not him. And then I was at a screening of uh, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in America and Phoebe Waller-Bridge was there. As I was going into the big Odeon in Leicester Square, she was coming out of the ladies' toilets, at which point I did that thing where I thought I knew her. You know, you kind of like, she's so famous that you just kind of go, I, lit- I, I nearly hugged her, I nearly touched her, but then I just went, oh my God, it's you! And then just spewed like adoration at her for about five minutes. I felt like a character in Fleabag. I was so mortified. Aww. Haven't slept since. Anyway, we're going to move on to health information. I know you're not particularly looking forward to this. Dear A Flight members one and two, you can decide which switch. You can be one. Go for I'll it. be two. No, go for one. Okay, I'll be one. I'm a long-time listener, long-time doctor, first-time emailer and grade six flute. I was compelled to write in after the callback last week about Mark and Simon's aversion to squat toilets. Are we really going here? Are we? Uh, I'm getting four nods, three nods from the gallery. I wanted to bring it nearer to home, from the wilds of Russia. Sit-down toilets have been known for many years to not be good for humans. Good digestive systems. Humans, good digestive systems, sorry. There is an internal muscle. This is just, really, are we going here? Are we really going? There is an internal muscle that is only activated to aid healthy bowel movement when the knees are above the waist. What has this got to do with films? The result is that sit-down toilets result in people having to strain more on the toilet throughout their life and in the long term can cause a number of problems including divertcular disease which is a condition I can't believe I'm actually saying this due to floppy bowel muscles (laughs) (laughs) this is health information not for this show it's not important for this show (laughs) this this show is supposed to be about films the consequences range from mild to catastrophic. This disease is not known in parts of the world where squat toilets exist, but it's very common in parts of the world with sit-down toilets. The key is not to change your toilet, that would be annoying to the least, but to use a footstool so that when you sit down to use the toilet, your feet are on the footstool and hence your knees are above your waist. That's a very high stool you're going to have to stand on. If everyone did this, it would be better for everyone's bowels in both the short and long term. Many thanks and tinkety-tonk down with the Nazis and say hello to Jason, etc. Dr. Nida Gupta. I hate that I have a contribution to this discussion, but there is... I love that you have! Come on! I do know that there is actually something you can buy to add to your toilet to... Like an extension? It's kind of like a special footstool. It's like a special thing. It's not just a footstool, though. You buy it specifically. You buy for your kids so they can reach the sink to brush their teeth. One of those. I can't remember exactly what I le- I just remember reading an article being like, you have to buy this. Oh, what, it was one of those Sunday supplement things. Yeah. I feel like I want to stand up right now and just work out how high the stool would have to be <laughs> to then make my knees be above my waist. Yeah, I think it's like exactly the perfect height 
Stephen Merchant is going to need one hell of a stool. That's all I'm going to say. Don't bring him this on the cruise. will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, here's this week's show. Good afternoon. How are you? It is the conveyor belt of Simon and Mark's stunt doubles for the next few weeks. Uh, this week, you have the pleasure of myself, Edith Bowman and Clarice Lockery. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm described as a stunt double because that's something I could literally never do in my entire <laughs> lifetime. Hey, never say never. You know, I'll, I'll be the Brad Pitt to, to, to your Leonardo DiCaprio any day. Yeah? Oh, yes. <laughs> I like how you're wearing fur today. Not real, but kind of like Ewok style. Oh, farts. yeah. Like, I'm very for the cricket? to fluffy things. <laughs> yes. Because we'll be wickets. We'll be plenty of those happening throughout the show, believe me. Um, how have you been? Been busy? Okay. Seen lots of good things, bad things, medium things? lots of things. Lots of, it's a funny Along time of year. Scale. It's a funny time of year for films, isn't it? Yeah, because it's the giant blockbuster gets dropped mm. and then everyone else is scared. So you have this weird, last week was extremely quiet. It was like, it was just documentaries, a list of documentaries. Yeah. And now this week, we're starting to ramp up again because yeah. I guess Lion King came out. Yeah, and which we'll talk about as well in, in, a, in a few uh, films' time. And also coming up over the next couple of weeks, not next week, but the week after, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, of course, um, which got its premiere in the UK this week, which you've seen. I have seen. I've seen it. I loved it. That's all I'm going to say about it, or maybe say a bit more about it. But I thought it was amazing. I really enjoyed <laughs> it. It's really emotional. It's all the emotions. And I think some emotions you don't expect from a, uh, a Quentin Tarantino film. Mm. And it's a great... I mean, I... I have my few issues with it, yeah. but I think it's so worth watching, even if you don't end up loving it, because it's it's such a conversation starter, the ideas that it brings up, yeah. and it's, yeah, definitely worth seeing. Okay, brilliant. Let's crack into the top <laughs> 10 this week, shall we? Uh, and at number 10, talking about documentaries, Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love. This is Nick Broomfield's latest documentary, following on from his last one, which was about Whitney Houston. This is Leonard Cohen and his muse, Marianne. Mm. And which I feel like the title is a bit misleading because so much of the emphasis is on Leonard Cohen and it only occasionally sort of goes off to be like, oh, and this was what Marianne was up to. And so it doesn't really break the the idea that she was just the muse, which obviously she wasn't. I think no person is just a muse. They have their own you know, life and ideas mm. and passions. And I just don't think the documentary does anything to to navigate that idea. I loved how, I mean, I felt like it really gave a bit more of an insight into who she was, though, in terms of, you know, where she came from and the fact that she was married with this kid and how and where and when he met her and what that then influenced him on from that point. Because at that point when they met, when I did, which I didn't realise, was that he wasn't making music, he was just a poet. And she was one of those people that kind of inspired that side of him and gave him that confidence to kind of take that step. And I guess... Being a big Leonard Cohen fan, it was really interesting for me to kind of hear the history behind that song, you know, that, you know, that you've, you've listened to so many times that just to get a bit more of an insight into her. And I know there's not that much stuff about her. And then the connection that Nick Broomfield had with her as well was a bit of a revelation, to be honest, for me. Um, Emma Bray says, I enjoyed it, but truly wish there had been more focus on Marianne, like you said, and her later life. Felt this left a gap in the documentary, so departed the screening, wanting to learn a bit more about this fascinating woman. Um, 
Nick Barrett on our YouTube channel says, thought it was a beautiful tribute to a pivotal relationship in Cohen's life. Yes, it weighed more on Cohen, but let's face it, there isn't much footage of Marianne out there and no one was documenting her life in the same way as they were at Leonard's. It's very surprising to learn Broomfield had a relationship with her. The film wouldn't have been made without this and added a very personal touch. I don't think there was a dry eye in the house at the end of the screening I went to. Yeah, I found it really emotional as well to watch, actually. You didn't. No. <laughs> you cold. To be honest, I just find that I found the connection when he sort of drops, oh, we used to be lovers. I, f- I found it doesn't really give it's you the It's a bit critical... like your dad telling you had a girlfriend before yeah, your mum. Yeah, it's a bit like, <laughs> okay, great, cool. What about the Leonard Cohen? <laughs> okay, less about you, more about yeah. Leonard Cohen. Okay, uh, so it's still out there, Marianne and Leonard. If you are a Leonard Cohen fan, I would I'd thoroughly suggest you go and see it because it is a really lovely insight, not into just their relationship, but that whole time around his world as well. Um, at number nine, Aladdin. It feels like it's been in there for months. Yeah, I feel like it was when we were both on yeah. last time. It was, which That's I think great. I said last time. Uh, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan just because ten weeks. Is it been 10 weeks? 10 weeks. That is impressive. That's the Lewis Capaldi of the film world. <laughs> I just get that reference. <laughs> Barely get it. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, yeah. It's done amazingly well. Amazingly well. Yeah. I'd, I'd really like to go back and see it again, actually, because it feels like so long since I have seen it. I love that kind of colour of it, you know, and that, particularly that Prince Ali big number and stuff like that. can't remember what you thought about it from when we reviewed it. I wasn't a huge fan just because I musicals are just my closest love and I feel like it wasn't the right choice to have Guy Ritchie do it because he's an action director and it's it's not on him to to have to know how to direct musicals and I'd wish they'd just gotten someone who was used because it's a certain literacy right to, in directing a musical number and I just feel like it wasn't there and so all the the shots were a bit weird. Mm. What's your favorite musical? Oh no, I can't do this. What's They're one of your favorite musicals? <laughs> what's one of what's today's one of today's favorite musicals? Okay, the last great musical I saw was Rocket Man. That's a great okay. example of a very well directed musical. Mm-hmm. Knows where to put the camera. Knows how to sync the music and the camera. That's a great example. How are you feeling about West Side Story? I don't know. Ooh. We'll see. We'll see. I'm excited, but a little Ooh. bit. I don't know. Cats. Scary. There's been so much talk <laughs> about the trailer, hasn't there? Yeah. Kind of, I have I actually, after seeing so much reaction to the trailer, I haven't actually been able to watch it because I'm a little bit scared because I loved the musical. I remember being eight years old and my mum bringing me to London for the first time and we went to see Cats in the West End and I was like, oh my God, there's a giant cornflakes box and look, oh, there's a cat to my right. It was. I was like absolutely mesmerised by the whole experience. To be fair, I've always been terrified of Cats the Musical, so okay. maybe you'll be fine. I don't think <laughs> maybe the trailer we should go together, is then. to hold my hand <laughs> yes. to make sure I'm okay. <laughs> uh, Aladdin, anyway, we digress at number nine in the top ten. At number eight, Casino Royale, Secret Cinema. Now, is this the 67 or the 06 Casino Royale? The 06. Okay. So Daniel Craig. Yeah, okay. And who did you go as? Because you I went. I was a trust fund socialite. How does this work then? You buy your ticket. And with your ticket, you get, like, who you are, a character sort of. You get a little bit of a chance to design your character. So you have certain options. You get given a name or you can create your own name. And then you get given one of, I think there was six different jobs or four different jobs. Yeah. And then you have to go wearing a certain costume that fits that character. So you can't just rock up as James Bond. 
no, okay. no, you have to be your own. Oh, it's wow. a bit like a drama exercise. <laughs> it's a bit like one of those murder mystery dinners that you get yeah. dragged along to and kind of go, you're Miss Scarlet. I don't want to be Miss Scarlet. To be fair, most people don't really come up with a backstory and I did. And then I told it to the person who was working there and they were really unimpressed because I don't think they cared <laughs> that I had designed an entire character. <laughs> Clarice and I back on with the top 10. Shall we number seven, The Current War. It's a new entry. Which... I think, I I don't know if you know the backstory to this, that it was used to be a Weinstein Company film and then it was going to premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival and Harvey Weinstein really put pressure on the director to get it cut in time for the festival and, and the director wasn't happy at all with what was shown. And then after that, the allegations came out, the company shut down and the film was shelved. We thought maybe we'd never see it again. But then now it's come out. He's had a chance to recut it in a way the director had a chance to recut it in the way he wanted to. And it's still not that great, unfortunately. Okay. Alfonso Gomez Reyna is a great director. So I, I don't know quite what happened, whether it was just the circumstances meant the film didn't turn out quite perfectly. But mm. it's, it's a weirdly edited, weirdly put together film. It's very busy. So many complications going on behind the scenes by the sound of things yeah. as well. Uh, Jane Bingham on Facebook says, well, I learned a lot and thought everyone gave a solid and convincing performance, but ultimately it might be a bit worthy. However, it was good for GCSE physics. Always a good thing when you've got a nice film to show students for, you know, in term time. True. You know. Um, Mark Stevens on Facebook. Just seen it. Have to say, I was well entertained. Trotted along at a reasonable pace and filled in many historical facts that I was unaware of. All the performances were adequate, if not blow your socks off brilliant. There we go. Robert Butcher on Facebook. I agree with Clarice about the music and the strange camera angles being distracting. What did you say about that? Didn't hear that. There's just a lot of different. It goes overhead, Dutch angles, just push someone to the side of the frame. It's just like every single sort of trick camera move all in one scene. What's a Dutch angle? It's when it's kind of slanted. So it's like almost if you got, when you have a thing on a tripod and it just slowly. When it starts to fall over. (laughs) Wait, the camera. But on purpose. (laughs) On purpose falling over camera. Okay, there we go. Robert says, uh, as a 55-year-old who has worked in the high-voltage electricity supply industry since leaving school, it got the point across as to why we have an AC transformer at the end of every street and not a DC generator. I love this. An electrical hill to die on. Why film at Craigside House outside Newcastle, the first house in the world to be lit with hydroelectricity with bulbs by Thomas Swan of Sunderland, who later went into business with Edison and pass it off as Westinghouse home in America. Also, spotted an in-joke for electrical engineers. When Tesla's told that nothing will ever be called after him, he has his hands on a model of a Tesla coil. There you go. Sean Kirby on Facebook, quite dull really, completely glossed over Tesla's importance, superficial addressing of the science and too much concentration on electrocution. Here we are. That's the current war. It's at number seven. At number eight, Annabelle Comes Home. Couldn't bring myself to watch this because I don't like scary films that much. It's not super, super scary. It's more fun. It's more sort of goosebumps. It's weird looking dolls. She is weird looking, so if you don't like that, she's in it quite a lot. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Okay, maybe do Paris on it then. Okay, but what's it like? It's, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. It's, yeah, as I said, it's not particularly scary. It's not even that original, but 
the idea is that she goes into the house and, and starts controlling everything else. And so everything comes alive. Everything's cursed. And, and so it is sort of like a Scooby-Doo goosebumps. <laughs> Roll the, spin the wheel and find out what ghoul is going to haunt you next okay. approach. I like Scooby-Doo, just not those scary weird doll things. Uh, right, that's at number six. Annabelle Comes Home. It's been in the top ten for three weeks. Uh, a new entry in the top ten, number five, is Horrible Histories. Um, the movie Rotten Romans. I've got quite a lot of correspondence. Shall I do that first or do you want to tell me what you thought first? Go with correspondence. Um, Cara Clapperton. Can't see any of the brilliant TV cast in there. Shame. They were brilliant. Lana Scott Ellis, my daughter, just turned 11, was taken with her class at school. My daughter has enjoyed the TV series and she thought the film was better and very funny. She loved Rattus Rattus, especially being the MGM lion. Chris Walsh says, a damp and humid Saturday afternoon led us to seek sanctuary in our neatest cool, dry cinema with no real idea what we wanted to see other than anything but Lion King. Come on, guys. Make up your own mind. We ended up in horrible histories purely on the logic that we enjoyed the recent BBC sitcom Ghosts and knew it was the same team. Our low to non-existent expectations were amply met by this agreeably silly romp through Roman history. With more than a few nods to Monty Python's Life of Brian and a reprise of Derek Jacobi's I, Claudius, the Six Laugh Test was easily reached and breached. A solid three out of five. Uh, Prayesh Pankania on Facebook says a warning to anyone thinking of going to see this on the strength of the consistently brilliant Python-esque Blackadderish CBBC series don't there is no Matthew Bainton Simon Farnaby Jim Howick Lawrence Ricard Ben Willibond or Martha Howe Douglas in sight and the writing has taken a deep dive since the multiple award winning TV series this plays out like Carry On Columbus for Kids avoid it's very strong, isn't it? Because, yeah, I haven't watched too much of the show. I've seen a the few. The TV show? Oh, it's brilliant. See, I know the books. Yeah. I used to be so obsessed with the books growing up and was a, such a huge history nerd partially because of the books <laughs> and then went on to do ancient history at university. So because this of was, the books? Well, it was the books and Gladiator and Disney's Hercules all combined. <laughs> Maybe oh, you want to do that. I don't think I could love you anymore, but I do after that comment. That's amazing. <laughs> so I spent four years and so much money because of that. Those three things. That's so yeah, amazing. this was pretty much made for me. So I, I really enjoyed it, yeah. and I really love horrible histories and the way that it does sort of combine that that silliness and also mm-hmm. genuine historical facts. So you are actually learning. Yeah, while laughing your head off. I it makes the TV show. We haven't seen it yet. I'm going to try and take the kids to see it this weekend. But the TV show makes my kids laugh in a way that nothing else does. It's a proper like guttural laugh. But they come away with like facts that are in there now. It's amazing. So clever. Yeah, I think everyone. Should, I think adults should be watching it too because <laughs> it's just hard to. You don't. I, I was saying this last week. At a lot of schools, you don't really get taught the full range of British history yeah. so you miss out on so much and, and Horrible Histories was there to fill in the gaps yeah. I'm ever thankful for it <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, Horrible Histories is a new entry number 5 in the top 10 and number 4 fifth week in the top 10 for yesterday which I enjoyed I think for me it really didn't sum up why the Beatles were so great but I think it's just a Richard Curtis rom-com it was really lovely and nice did you cry at the secret bit? <laughs> I didn't I didn't. You didn't? I didn't. Man. I think it was, again, the thing with the... Anything with the Beatles, I wasn't quite convinced okay. on. Okay. But... So the secret bit, because I don't want to 
give any spoilers for anyone who's not seen it yet. There's an amazing moment in the middle of the film that I will refer to as the secret bit. And the person who's in the secret bit, who plays the secret person in the secret bit, I saw recently at Transmit Festival in Scotland and had to just, I ran up to him in the same way that I did with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I ran up to him and just was like, oh my God, you were brilliant. It was so good. And it was a very personal thing for him to take on that role. So if you haven't seen it yet, I hope I've not given away a spoiler. If you have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And I hope, like me, you bulge your eyes out. Um, Right, Phil Hosker of yesterday says, hello from a LTL. Writing to say I went to yesterday, yesterday. I'm writing this on Monday. And so it seems funny now, but probably not by the time you read it out, if indeed you do. Well, we are. The film was great, if not without its flaws. Lily James clearly the wrong person for the role. And when any of the Mersey tunnels are that, when are any of the Mersey tunnels that quiet? But my real reason for writing is to congratulate the mum, who was quite obviously brought a party of children for an evening out. They filled the row in front of us, and mum dished out drinks and snacks in the noisiest packaging I have ever heard. She then withdrew. To the other side of the cinema and sat with what I can only presume were some more of the children's parents. So I'd like to say, although her behaviour makes me doubt she's a member of the church, good work, Mum. I hope you enjoyed the movie in peace while the rest of us had to put up with noisy rustling of packaging and constant chattering. Have any other members of the church come across this phenomenon? Tinkety tonk and all that, Phil Husker. I've had that happen, Have actually. Where they, where they didn't sit at the back, but they sat one row behind and so I sort of felt that I was the babysitter <laughs> suddenly and I did not feel like I had the responsibilities. No. I mean the children were actually quite well behaved, but I was scared for a second because <laughs> these two children just sat next to me unaccompanied. And I was oh, like uh, who are Oh you? no <laughs> Do I have to do anything right now? <laughs> but yeah, they were they were well behaved. Um yesterday then number four in the chart. Number three, Spider Man Far From Home. Which I thought was just nice as a palate cleanser after Endgame, which was so stressful to watch. (laughs) (laughs) And so epic and so everything at once. And so just to have something that was quite light and a little bit forgettable, but fun to enjoy in the moment. What do you think about the Tom Holland and Jake Gyllenhaal chemistry and relationship? I think off screen more. I don't don't know if you really get it Mm. in the film, but... that's That's what I wanted more of on screen, really. Yeah, they need to have a separate comedy together, I think. And I also think as well how much I absolutely love Spider-Man and Spider-Verse. Yeah. It's so hard to follow any Spider-Man type of film up after that. Yeah, because I've never been a big Spider-Man person, but that was the film that really sold me on the idea of Spider-Man. And I love Tom Holland as well, though. So, uh, yeah. There's going to be more Spider-Man films, is there? Yeah. I think there's at least going to be another one. Tyler's Don't worry. Not, there's not going to be any more <laughs> Toy Story. That was sad to think oh, when you're watching. Oh, oh, there might be. Is there? They haven't said there's not. Tom Hanks surely said he, it wasn't. No? He said there might. They've said there might be another one. She knows stuff. Oh, I don't know. any. It's all public information. I don't know anything secret. Okay, what did you think of four? Um, I really, really enjoyed it and I was particularly impressed by how good the new characters were because you are so attached to Woody and Buzz and Jesse. But then to to have this full new array of completely new people that you end up loving just as much, especially Forky. Yeah. I am a big, big 
big forky advocate right now. <laughs> Just the way he wanders around saying, I'm trash. <laughs> Extremely relatable. And I think it still had that sort of loveliness to it and that sadness that Woody carries with him was still there, which was... Totally. Keanu Reeves, genius bit of casting as well. So good. So, so, so good. Toy Story then at number two and at number one... It's the circle of life, the Lion King. Come on, give it the love you want to give it. I know you do. I really, really like the Lion King. And I understand everyone's concerns about, you know, doing this hyper-realistic CG animation means you're not getting the same expressions that the original animation had. But I think for me, I, I was a little bit put off at first, but then I started to see how the animals were expressing themselves through their bodies And it's like when you're watching a nature documentary Mm -hmm. and you can put so much emotion on these animals just by the way that they put their ears or their paws or even just kind of the way they stand. Mm. And so I think once I'd become attuned to that, I got really, really caught up in it. Because you know the story and the emotions are very familiar, but to see them play out in a completely different language in Mm -hmm. a way, I thought was really cool. Just really cool and interesting. In the same way that with Aladdin, it was always going to be near impossible or it was going to be a difficult thing to do to try and um, beat that Robin Williams performance. Similarly with Pumbaa and Timon, with this, I was kind of like, how are they going to do that? They can't just mimic what's already been done. And I think what Seth Rogen, what they've allowed Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner to do with these characters, obviously we know them already, but they've definitely been allowed to kind of play with it and have fun with it. And they own it. Mm, yeah, I think the second I heard Timon go, hear me out in that incredible <laughs> Billy Eichner voice, I was like, this is yeah. perfect because Timon was my favourite, absolute favourite character from The Lion King growing up. I was really obsessed with him and wanted to be a meerkat and I love Billy Eichner as well. So yeah. it felt like a, a cosmic yep, moment for me. Hakuna and Matata, LTL, FTE. I headed to the cinema on Saturday with my long-suffering non-cinema going other half to see The Lion King. I was very anxious going into this. But from the moment Simba opened his eyes, I was in tears. I'm not sure if it was because this was quite a big deal for me. Us going to see a film together, not on my own. If Simba reminded me of my seven-week-old baby girl and, you know, hormones. Or if it was because the 1994 film was the first film I saw in the cinema and had and I was reliving it all over again. The film didn't disappoint. I laughed, I cried, I left the cinema a little overcome. The best bit was when him outdoors, he's an HGV driver, turned to me and said, that was amazing. Maybe this means we're on track for cinema trip number five out of our 10-year relationship time soon. Wow. My only criticism is that Beyonce should calm it with the vocal acrobatics. Ruined a perfectly good Elton John song. Um, love this show, Steve, and hello to Jason Isaacs, Jen and Neilston. Uh, Dear Scar and Mufasa. Oh. Oh. Can we not be Simba and Mufasa? Or Timon and Pumbaa. Can we... Let's be Timon and Pumba. Uh, I'm currently on a visit to Newcastle with my good lady doctor. She's giving a presentation on contemporary art and heritage at Newcastle Uni this coming Monday. On the way up from our home in London, I decided to take her on a trip up to my old university in Middlesbrough, where I studied computer animation and visualisation, one of the first courses in the country to do so in the early 2000s. As we had time to spare, while spending this weekend in Newcastle, we decided to go and see the new live-action version of The Lion King. As a previous animator, I would prefer to it as a more photo realistic 
My partner loved every second and I must admit I thought it was excellent too. Not only was the story and the voice acting top notch, but also the animation, the heft making characters and items feel to have weight, the understanding of how different animals move from the way in which the antelopes cantered to the roll of each lion's paw before it was placed on the ground in each step. And of course, the timing, which was key in ensuring that not only each musical cue was met, but also that each bodily movement made sense in their wider context, bridging the gap between the cartoon version and the CG version. We also felt being in our late 30s that ourselves and many people in the cinema with us had the lovely connection between seeing this version and remembering the impact of the original, which not only made us feel like that this new version was honest to the original, but also provided an extra dimension of jokes and backstory so it wasn't all the same as before. Tinkety-dunk and down with the hyenas, Andrew. Fabulous. Uh, right, that is your top 10. Uh, Blinded by the Light is out in cinemas next Friday and I had the pleasure of catching up with its director and co-writer, Gorinda Chada. And you can hear her talk about the film after this clip, which features Vivek Kalra and, as Javid and Dean Charles Chapman as his friend Matt and Rob Bryden as Matt's dad. Now, what you got there? This guy is incredible. You've never heard lyrics like his. Is that Billy Joel? Billy Joel, you plonker, that is Bruce. God, you try and raise your kids right, Jay. I was there, son. 1981, Wembley Arena, Roti, oh, the River Tour. Don't go rhyme me songs like him, Jay. He's too... Old school? No, American. Listen, I can't be dealing with all that, you know, born in the USA, stars and stripes. Surprised you're into it, mate. Actually, that song's about the desperate plight of Vietnam veterans who were treated really badly when they came home. You tell him, son. That's a clip from Blinded by the Light. It's my pleasure to be joined by its director and co-writer, Gorinda Chada. Hello. Hello. (laughs) I love Bruce Springsteen. I know you love Bruce Springsteen. But tell everyone a little bit about this film and this wonderful story. So Blinded by the Light is set in Luton. It's 1987. A lot of unemployment around, a lot of hardship. And we meet this kid, Javid, 16, really wants to be a writer. He's got a Pakistani family. The dad's been laid off from Vauxhall. Mum sews dresses at home. Parents like, writing isn't for us. Not a real job. You need to get a proper job. Go and be an estate agent. Make loads of money. (laughs) That's what we need. And he's really depressed because he really wants to follow this dream. And then one day on the night of the storm, the hurricane, somebody gives him a cassette and it's a Bruce Springsteen cassette. And he's kind of sceptical, but he puts it in and suddenly the words and music of Bruce Springsteen help him find his own voice and help him find his own path to fulfil what he wants in life. It's an incredibly personal story and you first came across this obviously from reading the book. Yes, so it's based on, yes, yeah, Safraz Manzar's memoir, who's a journalist now, so he did become a writer. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> um, and Safraz and I were friends for many years because we were both big Springsteen fans. So Is I, that how you guys became friends then? Yes, because I was, uh, I was uh, when I was at school, I had a Saturday job working at Harrods in the record department and I was really interested to soul and you know reggae and and then in Harrods one day this guy English bloke long haired beard said to me have you ever heard of Bruce Springsteen and I said yes but I'm not a rocker because I had him down as some heavy metal yeah. kind of guy um, and he said I think you should listen to him I think you'll like him and he pulled out the album of Born to Run and I was 
shocked because here was a white dude and a black dude being very pally with each other and I had never come across that before except once before the only band at that time that had black and white people in it was Casey and the Sunshine Band so I was intrigued by that picture because of course it was the 80s there was a lot going on in terms of race, we'd have the riots or disturbances or whatever you want to call it. And we were all trying to work out if we were British or British black, British Asian or whatever. So that album cover really spoke to me and went home, listened to it, and I was blown away because the way the saxophone mixed with the you know the guitar and, and Bruce was very soulful. And then the words, of course, had great meaning for me. Yeah. And then I saw him in 1984, Wembley Arena. And for some reason, I was at that concert with Paul Whitehouse. As you are. <laughs> As you are. So it was Paul right. Whitehouse, myself, and Dave Cummings, yeah. who wrote Kevin and Perry Go. And I said, we were all on chairs going, traps in the car. <laughs> and it was yeah, no going back. And Safraz um, had re- written an article in a newspaper mm-hmm. with a very dodgy photo of him with Bruce in the background, looking like caught in the headlights, you know. And I was like, "Who the heck is this guy? It's another Asian guy into Bruce." And that's how we connected. We thought we were the only two Asians in the United Kingdom that that you know were Bruce fans. How amazing! You almost had this parallel experience in terms of that connection with him as an artist. Yeah, I mean, I would say Safraz is a super fan. Um, how many he, times? Two hundred and fifty times or something. Like, okay. <laughs> well, there's hundred and fifty times he's seen him, and we're not counting the times when he's been hanging around hotels. Oh, oh, and, Wow, cars, okay. you know, doing the, you know, hanging around waiting <laughs> yeah. for that photo. I think that he, for him, it was a you know a very spiritual moment, and in many ways, Springsteen was, became a sort of father figure. Yeah, I think to him, and had a direct impact on on his writing and and uh, in his life. You know, for me, I also had the specials. They were my big yeah. band, the specials and the Clash, and the Jam, and that whole period of Rockets racism. Yeah, you know, that was a big period for me. But also the whole Bhangra music scene was a big thing for me in the 80s because that helped me define who I was and yeah. who I am. Um, in fact, my very first film I made in 1989 was called I'm British But... Dot, dot, and it's about uh, the whole British Bhangra music scene. Hence, I put that also in the film. The film is... It's not just Javid's story. There, there are so many different things going on yeah. in that setting at that time. Be it, you know, with immigration, with with cultural identity, with violent racism that's going on. I mean, it's interesting. There's all these quotes that are saying a beacon of joy, a joyful film, and then there's like Nazis marching through it and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. It yeah. sort of is. A, depends what trailer you watch, right? I think the thing is, it's very important for someone like me as a director when I make films you know I am who I am I'm British I'm Asian I'm female and that conjures up all kinds of different combinations of identity and people are always trying to put me in a box yeah and I'm always going no I'm not that box I'm much bigger than that and so I I if I'm going to talk about uh, racism and issues and problems for me it's very important that I also balance it out with mm-hmm. the joy in my life and the joy in our community and the love in our community because we're not just solely defined by those things mm. and often people who tell our stories who aren't from our backgrounds that's what they do they limit it to one kind of definition and experience because they see the problems they don't see uh, the joy mm. in the way that I do and 
And it's it's sad because I'm one of the few people out there doing, you know, making kind of content about the British Asian community. And so it feels like it's, you know, maybe all over the place. But the reason that I can make it feel like one thing is because it's based on truth yeah. and, and honesty. Well, I love that layeredness to it. That's the wonderful thing is that it kind of, you know, there there are surprises in there and there are, there's journeys. You know, you go on journeys with those characters, with those situations. Yes. The unexpected, it, you know, can happen. Right. But one of the reasons I think people relate to it is because it's very universal. Even though it's a British Pakistani family in Luton, that could be any family, actually. And it's also a British narrative, you know, that we are a very mixed country, regardless of what anyone wants to say. You know, we all have friends from different backgrounds. We eat food from all different countries. So we enjoy those narratives if they're told to us because we see ourselves and our country in those narratives, you know. So I think I've been experiencing it all over the world, people coming up to me and sort of shaking my hand and so has Safraz, where people are saying the story is completely relatable mm-hmm. because it's actually about a father and a son and the inner story is about a father and a son trying to find a middle ground, you know, and that's everybody's story. Everybody needs some kind of validation from their parents. Everybody's had that moment where the parents want one thing for them and they're yeah. saying, nope. There's something like 17 Springsteen tracks in the yes. film. How hands-on was he and how did you get his, you know, his backing on this? Well, when I read uh, Safraz's memoir, he gave me the galleys. He had secretly hoped that I might find something in it because, of course, Bender Like Beckham was a big hit. And for him, he was like, OK, she's the only person who's going to get it. And she's also a Bruce fan. And I did like his memoir. I thought it was very touching. But what he was doing was protecting his family, mm. which I understand totally. You know, we all do that. Um, and he'd taken a lot of the drama out. And I said two things. I said, we need to put the drama back in. So I need to... M- take your story and move it away from you a little bit. But at the same time, we have no film without Bruce. Um, Unless Bruce backs us, there's nothing here. And as luck would have it, uh, in 2010, Bruce came to London for the premiere of The Promise. Mm -hmm. And we both sat, we were waiting for him, and then he came down the red carpet. And Safraz had a copy of his book with him to give him, if he he managed to meet him. And I was standing there with a camera... And then as Bruce came round, he spotted Safraz, who, of course, has stalked him, so he knows what he looks like. Um, and he walked over and he said, man, I read your book. It was really beautiful. Oh, my gosh. And then Safraz had a Did meltdown. Did you have to pick him up off the ground <laughs> exactly. at that point? He was like, oh, my God, just like you said. He was like, oh, my God. <laughs> read it how did you read it who sent it to you and Bruce is like yeah yeah people send me stuff like really cool <laughs> and then I'm sitting there my heart I'm in, having palpitations now and and I'm like this is it this is the moment I've got to do a movie deal right now on the red carpet before people move him on and I just tried to sound professional and sadly I wasn't very professional but I was like Bruce, I'm going to Chatter. I'm a film director. I'm a bit like Beckham. He went, yeah, I heard about that movie. Uh, we're really glad you're here. We, we love this book. We want to make a movie of this book. Will you support us? Honestly, it was like that. And he sort of looked at me and he looked at Safraz and he went, sounds good. Talk to John. And behind oh, him no, was John Landau and we exchanged contacts and that's how the movie 
happened. And was he involved at all whilst you were making it? The only... He, he read the script. He came back after... We, we knew we had to write a script for him. And I made a movie for him. Not you, not anyone else. For I'm Bruce. Like, for Bruce. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we sent him the script, I got the message from Tracy Nurse, his manager, came, came back to me and said he's read it. And I said, OK, how, what did he think of the characters? What did he think of how we use the songs? What did he think? What did he think? And she said, he, he said, I'm all good with this. And I was like... What does that mean? Exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, so does that mean I can move forward? And she said, he said, I'm all good with this. And I said, so does that mean I can use a song? Can I can I make the movie? Like, and he's like, so this Tracy said, yeah. He said, I'm all good with this. So I said, so I can now go off and. <laughs> and she said, he said, I'm all good with this. He means go and make the movie. So we started making. I mean, I raised the finance, got the movie together, and we made the movie. And I had carte blanche to use all his Whoa. songs however I wanted. The the only song I was nervous about was Jungle Land, which was my favourite, one of my favourite songs of his. And I, there is a, a moment where the NF marches through the streets. And for me, I just wanted to use that saxophone from Jungle Land with uh, Clarence, right? Because for me, it was a very, very spiritual moment yeah. uh, in that song. And also the slow piano, which is very poignant, and the last verse. And unlike the other songs of Bruce's, uh, I carefully choreographed how I used them so that I never cut them. Mm-hmm. And if there was a lyric that wasn't necessarily relevant, I would have Javid fast forward on his Walkman or I'd ha- introduce some dialogue and then you came back, back to the it, relevant. Yeah. yeah. So I never cut anything of his. But Jungle and I had to cut. And so I went to New York to see him on Broadway and after the show I said to him... He said, oh, how's it going? And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> thanks, Bruce. Oh, thanks, Bruce. <laughs> and um, um, I gave him my dilemma about Jungle Land and explained how I wanted to use Clarence's saxophone, but I had to cut the song. And and he said, wow. He said, I think Clarence would really love that. You must do that. <laughs> like that. Oh, wow. So that was his only input during the making of the film. And at the end, of course, in my director's cut, he had no involvement. I was like, he's got to see this film before I cut, you know, before I yeah. lock it. Because he might hate the way I've done Born to Run. He might he might be like, what the heck is this? This is kids running around Luton singing, you know. <laughs> it's not, you know, the, the big man, you know. What a responsibility on me, you know, because not only, you know, am I a fan, but... But Bruce has such a massive legacy and, like, massive fans all over mm. the world. So I had to get that right. On the other hand, I was aware there were going to be people watching who weren't Bruce fans. And so the story had to stand up for them, mm-hmm. regardless of Bruce. Um, and then there was the whole cultural story of uh, Javid, and I had to get that right. So I was juggling quite a lot with the music and, and the story. Um, but I did take the film for him to see in New York. Um, it was a Sunday afternoon <laughs> and there was him and a few managers uh, in the room and I sort of sat sort of to the back to the side of it so I could see the wrinkles on his face, you know, in the light. So he did smile a few times. He watched it very intensely. And then at the end, there was absolute silence and my heart 
sort of sank. Oh, I would have been sick. Yes, I was like, <laughs> well, this hasn't gone how I wanted. But, of course, the managers didn't want to say anything in case, you know, they needed to hear him first. So I got up and walked to the front to put the lights on and I was going to get my tape and scurry out in case they all needed to talk. And as I as I put the lights on, he walked over to me and he gave me a big kiss and then he put his arms around me and he said, wow, thank you for looking after me so beautifully. Oh, man. He said, don't change a thing. No. And then we sat there for an hour and... This is the surrealist bit. He sat there and just went through every single thing that he loved about the movie. And I was... You want to cry. Honest (laughs) to God, I I don't even know how I didn't cry. I was like, I was like, this isn't happening to me. And all I kept thinking was, I wish I could film this. I wish I could pull my phone out and do a selfie. And I was like, don't do it. Be professional. Um, Oh, what a wonderful story. It was uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me. But what was fantastic about Bruce, of course, was that he loved how... I used his music to make it relevant, politically relevant to today. That yeah. was his big takeaway. And I've just heard from Barbara Carr, and I can say this now, his manager, she just told me yesterday, she said he was so inspired by me directing this movie that he's gone and directed a movie now himself <laughs> for Western Stars. Oh, my God, that's me. So yes. what was the inspiration for the film? Yeah. Gorinda. Exactly. So I'm like, Bruce, okay. I see you two working on a film together in the future. That would be brilliant. That would be awesome. Oh, well, listen, yeah. I think that that's the brilliant thing that it does, as you say, is that it, it, it tells so many different people's stories, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you've done a brilliant way of, of marrying the story, but with the music as well. It's, it's great. Oh, thank Thank you so much. I do feel like, you know, as a director, I've always felt, because I never went to film school and I learnt on the job, I do, as a director, feel like it's probably my best film that I've made, you know, for all those reasons. Well, it's because it comes from the heart. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thank you. She's so nice. So lovely to talk. That story about Bruce watching the film was just a prop. I was almost in tears while she was telling me it was brilliant. Um, So... Can you tell me a little bit? Well, it's not out till next week, is it? But do you want to give a quick thought on Blinded by the Light? Yeah, I really loved it because of of how much it captures the importance of Bruce Springsteen, which I think we were talking earlier about yesterday mm. in The Beatles, this and the way it... So because I, I'm not someone who listens to Bruce Springsteen every day. I mean, I love him, who doesn't? But yeah. I think to have a, a piece of cinema that... That just, yeah, sort of reminds you of the profound importance of certain musicians. Yeah, and how they can cross cultures and things yeah. like that as well. It's brilliant. Um, right, Balance Not Symmetry, new film out today. Uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, so this is the latest from director Jamie Adams, whose work is really focused on the internal lives of creative people, especially musicians. Uh, and this one is no difference, although different, although there are a few ideas bubbling here. And it's very much about the grief process and how we do change when we have this, what is a really profound change in our lives and how that affects us on a both a personal and an artistic level. Uh, Laurie Harrier plays Shirley Caitlin Walker, who has already been ripped from her roots because her family relocated her from New York City to her mother's native Scotland. And then her father dies. And that is so completely disorientating for her because she's torn between 
this new life that she's built for herself. She's a third year student at Glasgow School of Art and the world of her mother, played by the formidable Kate Dickey. Love her so much. <laughs> Always fantastic. And she's living alone on the coast and she says that she's fine, but Caitlin is still worried about her. And so it's exploring that aspect of the relationship and how personal anguish can fuel creative output. Although she's really struggling because she can't quite find a way to express that pain in her in her art and the problem is that I think once you actually see her final creation the issue is is that the film doesn't really quite explain how the personal anguish comes out in the art because it is a bunch of shapes and I feel like I'm quite literate in in art but the film just doesn't really offer much explanation as to why, why, what's the connection, what's the connection between all these blocks and shapes and, and her feelings. She just kind of goes, this is about my father's death. And you just have to nod and go, yep, sure. <laughs> and I think as well, you have a slight issue because it starts out with this mother-daughter relationship and then it suddenly veers away towards her relationship with her best friend Hannah who's played by the Florida Project's Brianta Vinate who is just oh. fantastic she just ha- she's so raw and she has such a, a natural charisma and I think without really knowing her history that character's history what the history of their friendship is who she really is as a person she su- she suddenly gets thrust into the center of the narrative and you don't really have much context for it and so it's really hard to invest in their friendship in that way. And you also have two love interests that get chucked in, uh, both for Caitlin and for Hannah. And this is definitely going for a, a fairly unstructured form of realism. You're wandering around with characters from their, their kitchen flat, their flat, the, sorry, the kitchen in their flat, uh, to a flat party, to the Kelvin Grove Museum, to an underground club. And it definitely does its best to capture an art student's experience of Glasgow because they go on a date to the Calvert Grove and they're wandering around and pointing at statues going, oh, that's you, that's you, which I, for me felt like, I don't know, very realistic. I, I liked all that stuff because I think when I was reading a little bit about the film as well and one thing that I think that Jamie encouraged was there's quite a lot of improvisation yeah. between the actors and stuff and you really... I think you really get a sense of those particular moments when that's happening because it does feel like this real date is happening in this, you know, in this environment for maybe one person who knows this place, but the other one who's not quite so confident in that world. Yeah. And so there are these moments of like really good realism. But then my issue with it is that the overall narrative feels really underdeveloped because of the soundtrack. And this was created as part of a collaboration with Simon Neal, who's the lead singer of Biffy Clyro, who are from Ayrshire. And so he both contributed ideas to the story and also wrote songs in tandem with the film's production that are meant to link into the dialogue, although I don't think it's particularly obvious in the film. And then those songs were released separately earlier this year. And the problem is that there's just too many songs. There's too many songs. And so you get into this pattern of... never enough Biffy Clyro, come on. I mean, it's just you get this pattern where it's dialogue scene, Biffy Clyro song, dialogue scene, Biffy Clyro song. And, and, And it's so overwhelming that you just keep losing track of where the narrative is and how these characters are feeling, what are they doing, what they're doing, because... It's not like a musical. The songs aren't created to progress the story. Mm -hmm. And they're also shot with this sort of 
music video aesthetic to them where it's all very floaty and and lens flare and it's just difficult to kind of follow the emotions. I think that I sat with the album for a good two, three weeks before I watched the film and I think that that made me connect with the film more because the songs were already kind of under my skin and so I knew the story of the songs and then watched the film. That might help, to be honest. The album's out, as is the film. Uh, It's called Balance, Not Symmetry. Right, let's get into some more new films. What are we going to talk about next? Hobbs and Shaw. (coughs) I just think of animals. I think of, like you know, like um, Turner and Hooch. Um, So Hobbs and Shaw for me is a bit like, oh, is it a cat and a rat? No, it's not. I wish. (laughs) That would be the exact same film, but it's a cat and it's a rat. (laughs) But it's not. It's The Rock and Jason Statham. It's not. So this is the ninth film in the Fast and Furious franchise and it's its first spin-off. So the Hobbs and Shaw of the title are not a cat and a rat. They are DSS agent Luke Hobbs, played by Dwayne Johnson, and mercenary Deckard Shaw, played by Jason Statham. And you don't really need to know anything about the previous films to understand who they are. They were both previously antagonists in the movies, but that's completely irrelevant now. Um, And they're forced to team team up to save the world because... Why not? And specifically (laughs) to stop a deadly programmable virus. And they keep saying programmable in the film and I have no idea what that means. But it's a programmable virus, of course, Uh, because it's been stolen by Deckard's estranged sister, Hattie, played by Vanessa Kirby, who is an MI6 agent who stole it from Ethion, who are a creepy tech cult who want to restart civilization, which is very standard villain activity. But it's also made her the primary target of Idris Elba's Brixton Law, who is a cyber genetically enhanced super soldier. Say that again. A cyber genetically enhanced super soldier. And there's a bit of explanation in as to who he is in this clip. You want to tell me just what in the fresh turkey hell we're dealing with here? Long story. It's a ghost. It's supposed to be dead. Eight years ago, I put a bullet through his brain. Great. So we're being chased by the Terminator. I don't think he's going to make it. Well, I don't think he can see over the steering wheel. Buckle up, fat boy. I'm going to save your life again. I mean, that's the entire I'm sold. Film. I am so going to see that this weekend. I honestly... What the fresh turkey hell. That's my favourite thing The Rock has ever said, apart from, you're welcome. I don't know if I need to keep going, because that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> but there was a moment halfway through this film where I just thought to myself, have we evolved to the next step of cinema? Because is this post, post, post-modernism? Because Hobson Shaw barely qualifies as a movie. There's almost no narrative to speak of and very little downtime. It's just scenes, any scene with exposition in it, it's over pretty quickly. It's basically just a series of things that trigger the pleasure center in the brain, which is sort of what you want from a dumb action movie. Totally. I mean, you're not... You're not really going actively to look for themes and and narrative. You're going, you're buying your ticket because you want to see Dwayne Johnson take down a helicopter with his bare hands. Of course you do. So, yeah, and it's always been the approach of Fast and the Furious, but I feel like this one presses things a little bit further. It felt very meta to me in a way that was very haphazard, as if they were just kind of throwing things into the mix just in case it made somebody laugh or even just smile or have a moment of enjoyment. Uh, For example, there's... A lot of very odd ties to other completely unrelated films and it's sort of to do with who has a cameo in this. And there's also a very random film that is confirmed to be a part of the Fast and Furious universe. 
Ed, you could say that it's just Fast and Furious feeling the pressure to become a kind of cinematic universe, but it could also just be that the people who are making these movies don't care anymore because it doesn't matter. Just you, anything goes. Uh, Ed, I feel like there is a lot of stuff to play around with here because the screenwriters Chris Morgan and Drew Pierce really know that Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham make for a pretty irresist- irresistible duo. It's as much an odd couple comedy as it is a high-octane film. Mm. And only in the world of Fast and Furious would Jason Statham, and only compared to Dwayne Johnson, would Jason Statham be set up as the the smaller, nimbler fighter. Which sounds, I mean, he could crush me with his palm. (laughs) His breath. Yeah, and the idea that he's like the little one is really, really played up in this film. And there is a lot of very immature humor, which I probably can't repeat on the radio, but it is it is a 12A, so they've reined it in a little bit, yeah. but it's a lot of very silly, silly jokes. Right. And a lot of them insulting each other. And what I liked is that when they are insulting each other, it, it does these very tight close-ups of them almost looking down the camera. So it feels like Dwayne Johnson is calling me a birdsog. Mm-hmm. which was quite nice. And I think the thing that also really did sell it for me is the fact that it's directed by David Leach, who did John Wick, Atomic Blonde, Deadpool 2, which I love the way that he approaches action, specifically hand-to-hand combat, because he really lets the choreography breathe and you can actually see it and appreciate it. And I think it's interesting because a lot of the bigger action set pieces, like the vehicle stunts and the explosions are done in a very traditional manner. So it is cutting a huge amount. So it's really hard to tell what's going on. Mm. So it's quite an interesting contrast. But I liked as well that the characters weren't being swallowed up by all this noise. I liked that Idris Elba had room to just be ridiculous because it is a ridiculous character. So why not be ridiculous with it? And I thought Vanessa Kirby had so much ferocity in her performance. And I think that was nice because it... it Managed to overturn a few of the the gender tropes in this movie. It frustrated me that she was always referred to as the girl, even by her own brother. Mm-hmm. And they are meant to be brother and sister, even though there is like a huge age gap. But there is no way that Jason Statham and Vanessa Kirby were children at the same time. But <laughs> that's Hollywood hey, movies. It's for a you. film. <laughs> it's not a documentary. Yeah. I remember uh, reviewing the latter or. or someone reviewing the last Fast and Furious film when I was covering for Simon the last time uh, when it was out and went to watch it with my friend Nathan at like 11 o'clock at night screening with hardcore Fast and Furious fans. It was such a brilliant experience because you step into their world and you step out of that kind of, oh, I need to be impressed kind of thing that you can find yourself going into the cinema to want and look for. Sometimes you just need to go in there and leave everything at the door and let what's on screen just entertain you. It's about finding pleasure in individual images almost because as a whole, it's just complete nonsense. Mm -hmm. But there are just these little... I loved the bit where Idris Elba just says, engage the drones out of nowhere and two drones just appear (laughs) just out of nowhere. I loved that. I'm definitely going to see it. Definitely. (laughs) I'm also quite intrigued as well from a headline I saw today because I wanted to ask you, do either, do The Rock or Jason Statham ever lose a fight? Oh, no. Okay, well, that's in their contracts, apparently. <laughs> apparently, it's in their contracts. There's a new story that's just come up from the Hollywood, the Wall Street Journal to say that it, contractually, neither of them are allowed to lose a fight. I think Jason, Jason Statham's contract says that he is allowed a certain number of hits on him. 
No. I thought it was something like that. Like, I can be punched five times before I must retaliate. It's like a very specific... It's not That's just that they can't amazing. lose fights. Some of them have really specific... Like, I can be hurt this much. Wow. Which I guess it makes sense. If you have such a huge image to uphold, like, you have to be... Yeah, but he's not rock. really getting hit, is he? You know, it's no. kind of... it's or, or is he? That's the thing. Maybe he actually is... You know, he's taken one for the team, so he's actually getting hit. But I guess it's more about the image you see on screen. Yeah. Because if you see The Rock lose a fight, maybe you'll be like, ooh, maybe The Rock You're isn't welcome. so tough. <laughs> Is that the only fight he loses in Moana? In Moana, yeah. That's the only one he loses. That's amazing. You said I like a lot in your review of this film. Yeah. I did like, I did like it. I think it was just... It had no reservations, and I do really appreciate films that realize that they're it. silly. They realize that they're just some, uh, just some nonsense to distract you from the world, mm. and actually have fun with that idea. Okay, great. So, Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw, thumbs up. Going to have fun. Let it entertain you. Um, let's talk about animals, shall we? Very different film, animals, but still about a duo, an on-screen duo. So. Quite fitting. They have contractual (laughs) obligations about how many times they can, how many drinks they can have would be probably in this How many emotional fights they can win. (laughs) And we did briefly talk about this Mm. when it was at the London Sundance, which is a showcase for highlights from the Sundance Film Festival. And you spoke to Holiday Granger and Elias Shawcat. Um, And I remember that I really liked it the first time, but I think getting to revisit it really made me appreciate how nuanced the writing is in Mm. this. And so this is the second feature by Sophie Hyde and it was written by Emma Jane Unsworth and adapted from her own novel from 2014 and I almost I think I almost got tricked in by how familiar the premise is because it's about two party girls who have crashed into their 30s and realize that they're starting to grow apart and Holiday Granger's character Laura meets Fra Feeds Jim and thinks about settling down and then Elias Shawcat's Tyler doesn't want to change she is committed to and I love this quote the rejection of the nuclear family in favour of an enlightened life. And there's a little bit more of her philosophy in this clip. Can I help you, ladies? I need some kind of wedding dress. Would you like some fizz while you're looking? It's complimentary. Yes. I just don't get this virginal bride stuff. It's very problematic. That and the idea of your father giving you away, as if you were a human baton being passed from one tyrant to the next. It's... Gross. That is why my dad is not going to give me away. Yeah. It's going to be a very modern wedding. <laughs> the state of me. The state of this whole show. I'm going to let you in on a little secret, my friend. There is no such thing as a modern wedding. And so Laura has spent 10 years writing a book that she has only written 10 pages of. So she's actually more of a tinkerer than a writer, as she says. <laughs> and when her, si- her sister suddenly announces that she's pregnant, she takes stock of her own life and decides to really focus on the book, get into this monogamous, I can't say that word, monogamous relationship mm-hmm. with Jim. And I think she's partially attracted to him because he is a successful and talented pianist, but he says the only reason he got there is because he worked hard and practiced every day, and I think she finds that quite motivating. And a quick side note, the book was set in Manchester, but this film is set in Dublin, which I really enjoyed that choice because it's such a, a literary city. And I liked the irony of Laura bumbling through this city at a loss with no inspiration, and she's in the exact same place that... 
you know, James Joyce and W.E. Yeats and Oscar Wilde sort of got their inspiration. And it, it's a really nicely shot film. It's edited and uh, cinematographized. That's not a word by Brian Mason. And he really focuses on the yellowy incandescence of the street lights and the feeling of desolation that you get from walking in a city very, very late at night. It's, it really feels empty in this mm. film. And so Tyler really sees this shift in Laura's life as a threat to their friendship. And she's just baffled as to why her friend would want to be participating in the exact same system that they've been railing against for years. And I think Tyler sees herself more living as art than creating art. And she really speaks in snippets of poetry. Uh, For example, instead of just saying that their periods have synced up, she says, the moon has married us both, which I thought was wonderful. (laughs) Um, And I think Tyler could easily have been a bit of a joke character, but Elias Shawcat has so much conviction in the way that she delivers lines. There's almost a mystical quality to her, and I think that really sells the whole persona, which I should also say that Holiday Granger is incredible in this movie. I mean, her character is meant to be having this massive crisis, but she doesn't scream or cry or throw things around on the surface. She seems like she's holding it together, but there are these little moments where she she looks a bit twitchy or anxious or there's a wild look in her eye. And I think as well what's really important about animals is the way it represents a codependent toxic friendship that doesn't blame either side. Mm -hmm. It's really that these two women have fooled themselves into thinking that they needed each other before discovering that they're really from two different worlds. And I think the crucial line in this film is when Tyler says uh, she reminds Laura of the first words that she ever spoke to her which were, you look like a girl who's looking for something. And I think Laura thinks that she's found something in Tyler because Tyler's so self-assured, and then Tyler sort of latched onto her because she's found someone who agrees with her worldview. And it's such a generous and really patient way to treat these two characters. My only frustration is that there's quite a lot of repeating shots of foxes and wild animals, you know, to underline this metaphor of animal nature, which I think was really unnecessary because the script is so nuanced. And there's so many layers to that. I just didn't think that you needed that. I like the fox thing because it reminded me of almost a kind of uh, uh, a parallel to the character, you know, in terms of wandering the streets at night, you know, that kind of thing of you kind of, you know, you hear the noises that foxes make at night sort of thing, kind of when everything else has kind of gone gone to sleep. I kind of like that sort of imagery of that whole notion of it. I think it's such a clever film. It's really clever. I think the way that it covers female friendship in particular and, like you say, that codependency that can be there for need uh, or unnecessary as well, how unnecessary it is when you haven't got that friendship right or you're not using it in the right way or relying on it in the right way. But the writing is extraordinary, yeah. absolutely extraordinary. And it would have been so easy to blame Tyler, make her yeah. kind of the villain of the yeah. piece, that she's drawing the energy, she's not letting Laura live her life. Yeah. But I think especially because of the performance, it's just such a... They're so good, tear them together. I had to kind of, I couldn't quite get my head around that it was Holiday Granger I was watching as well. I was like... Who I know who it is, but who is it? You know, when I watched it for the first time, she's brilliant. Yeah, because I think for so long she's been really getting sidelined in films and sort of bit part characters. And yeah. to see her really get to show us how great she yeah. is. Brilliant. We've had a couple of emails about it. Animal takes the development from adult in theory to proper grown up to the extreme, demonstrates the challenges of this process, not only for the individual, but their friends and family too. The two women felt so real at times, I forgot I was watching actors, which is a pretty rare occurrence for me. Perhaps this was helped by some excellent drunk acting or acting drunk. At times it was funny, heartbreaking and cringeworthy, that poor baby. 
Oh my God, that's a great scene, isn't it? Oh, that made me full body cringe. Yeah, I really enjoyed watching a film about two women in which their friendship and personal development was the focus. The romantic element was more of an obstacle rather than the aim which made the film more interesting for me. Yours soberly, Anna Nixon in Leeds. Uh, Dear Edith and Clarice, a few weeks ago I was lucky enough to see a preview screening of Animals in my local multiplex. I had a real a read beforehand that it very much fell into the you either love it or hate it category and this was confirmed by the three separate people who walked out never to return at different points of the film. Wow. Oh, I wouldn't have thought it would yeah, me neither, be that actually. controversial. Thankfully for me though, I felt strongly into the I fell strongly, sorry, into the Love It category to the point that I would say it is my top three films of the year. I grew up in Dublin, moving to the UK when I was twenty two. I've seen my home city represented in multiple films since my relocation, but never so beautifully and accurately. Without feeling the need to be an ad for the Dublin Tourist Board, the small <laughs> pubs, cobbled streets and Georgian houses are more representative of the Dublin I grew up in than any other film I've seen based in the the Irish capital. More importantly though the friendship between Tyler and Laura is played with so much love and intensity with sensational performances from Alia and Holiday. Like the film itself Tyler and Laura are not trying to make you like them, they are being themselves and whether you accept them or not is of no concern to them. Finally when my son was two weeks old I dropped a bit of sausage roll on his head without realising and it rested on his head for over 20 minutes. So I had particular sympathy with Laura during one specific scene. <laughs> Keep up the great work Dan O'Connor. Thanks for your email Dan. Brilliant. I've just got a quick one from Hobson Shaw, actually, which I thought I'd read out as well before we move on to the next film, if that's all right. Um, from Brian Cunningham. Dear Edith and Clarice, I attended a preview of Fast and Furious, Hobson Shaw, uh, last night in Dublin, funnily enough. I'm not going to lie, I loved it. I know Mark isn't the franchise's biggest fan, but A, it's a spin-off and B, it has the stave, so that should mitigate his reservations. The plot is full of well-worn tropes, something about two men who only work alone, a shadow global organisation, mumble, mumble, nasty virus, blah, blah, new world order through exterminating the weak. Doesn't matter. It is a near-perfect mixture of an almost continuous sequence of action set pieces, fight scenes and some comedic dialogue, helped in particular by cameos from Kevin Hart and Deadpool sorry Ryan Reynolds the whole cinema erupted in laughter when Hobbes' entire nom de voyage was revealed the two leading men the Stath and the Rock have a great chemistry despite the initial hostility which you know is going to evaporate over the course of the movie Vanessa Kirby as the leading lady kicks as much ass as the men while channeling the atomic blonde look Edith was kind enough to read out my review a few years ago. Idris Elba is a great villain. More from him, please. These characters deserve further instalments of this spin-off. There are plenty of loose threads lying around to fill up a good few screenplays. They should get their own genre named after them. Stathrock movies. Stathrock movies, even. Sum it up. Part of your brain at, uh, park your brain at the door. Stock up on code-compliant snacks. Not that you'll be heard eating anything during the action sequences and just bask in the awesomeness that is this movie. Regards, Brian Cunningham. That's very, yeah. It's good, isn't it? it. Right, from (laughs) animals to holidays. Yes. So this is the debut feature from Swedish writer-director Isabella Eklöf. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and it exists to provoke thought and emotion, which I think it's both incredibly successful in but also... Makes me slightly hesitant. The plot uh, follows Sasha, who's played by Victoria Carmen-Sonne, who visits Turkey's Aegean coast to visit her crime boss boyfriend, Michael, played by Lei Yid. 
uh, who's vacationing with his whole crew of associates and wives and their wives and children. And as the film progresses, we have our worst suspicions confirmed and discover how dangerous and abusive a situation this woman is in. And it is a film about abuse that's wrapped up and shot with the aesthetics of a crime thriller. And there is a, a tacky luxury to everything that, you know, it is really reminds you of this kind of resort where the clubs and bars all have mirrors and neon and the villain that they're staring the villa that they're staying in is just pure white everything and the production designer Josephine Faso and the costume designer Sasha Valbjorn really have built up this world in a convincing way uh, that contrasts with the violence that you're seeing on screen and it, it builds up slowly it starts with where Sasha lands at the airport and she's picked up by one of Michael's cronies and after she confesses that she spent a little bit of the money meant to that she's meant to deliver to them uh, she gets slapped across the face and threatened and it, it just keeps keeps building up to this one scene that is a very very graphic sexual assault so I would mm. warn a lot of people to be careful with this film and yeah this it kind of yeah it, it builds in, up to this, this one, one scene, moment yeah. that is really really horrifying yeah. and I would question whether it is necessary it feels like a, a first time director really trying to make their mark and sort of establish establish themselves by by creating something that feels so extreme and really sort of shakes you it really shakes the way it's shot as well, and the way that it's just yeah. this one shot, and this whole sequence unfolds on this one wide shot as well. It's kind of yeah, and I I really see why she did this approach because it's the idea that you see all these scenes before where it cuts away before you actually get to the abuse, and then to see it unfold and in such a stark way, I think your mind then starts to fill in the rest of the information, and you realize how horrific her life has been. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think it was, even though I do feel hesitant about it, I think it was necessary to tell this particular story. And it is about a woman trapped in a cycle of abuse. And I think as well, the way that the camera is so cold and so removed, it's in this very sunny environment. It's really not handing you empathy on a silver plate. It's making you do the work of finding empathy with this woman. So I think... It's difficult but powerful. Did it stay with you? I think so. Yeah, I think it's it. It was hard to shake off. Yeah, it's kind of it's. I watched it this week and and um, it's definitely not one to kind of you know encourage to watch with your family. I don't think it's sort of no, no or with anyone else. Yeah. it's one of those films you really just have to sit with alone, alone, and kind of yeah process it and think about it, which I think is very much why she created this film. Yeah, is to really provoke you because it's not an overly empathetic portrayal of this woman yeah I thought she was great the the young girl that played the lead I thought the way that she kind of navigated that role as well I can't imagine it being an easy thing to do you know in terms of the different she's so childlike as well in this film you know she's so young but I think her performance was incredible actually yeah because she she's so convinced she has this naivety that she's so convinced that her beauty because someone tells her early on that you know pretty girls you know everything's free for free for them there's no consequences mm. and she's really held on to this idea and this delusion that almost this abuse is is sort of the price she has to pay to have this lifestyle and be mm. given all these gifts by this rich man and it's it's sort of horrifying to watch her in this gilded hell that she has convinced herself that almost not that she wants to be in it, but that this she is has to this is it. her life. Mm, yeah. Let's do TV movie of the week, shall we? Every week, our top production team pour sweat 
over the TV listings and compile a list of the 12 best films on telly over the next week. Then post them on our social channels for your viewing pleasure. And then you, very kindly, tell us which ones are your favourites. Elaine on Facebook, The Red Shoes. It is the only film in that list that I can watch again and again and again and again. Never tired of it, never dates, having a timeless theme. Downfall, a powerful film with great acting but would not want to watch it again. Chris Rogers on Twitter, Kubo on the Two Strings is wonderful, but with yesterday in cinemas, it has to be Danny Bell's much underseen trance, slick, stylish, sexy, all kinds of entertaining. It got unfairly dismissed back in 2013, but still stands up as a brilliant showcase of Boyle kicking back after the Olympics. Paul Boland on Facebook's got to be Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. The new trilogy is pretty perfect. Anne-Marie Flanagan on Facebook says Kubo and the Two Strings. Really gorgeous, beautiful, deep and moving film, but should be seen at the cinema to fully appreciate it. And Lauren Rose on Facebook, my choice would be Brooklyn. Stellar performance from Saoirse Ronan. Wonderful supporting cast, especially Julie Waters. Uh, as Ellis's landlady. I think it's a rare example of where the film is better than the book. I think Clarice will choose The Bling Ring, which is also a good choice, with the cast being able to produce almost likeable characters, which is difficult, given the subject matter of the film. So to choose from, Panic in the Streets, Red Shoes, Kubo and the Two Strings, Kung Fu Panda, Brooklyn, Bridget Jones's Diary, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, The Guest, Downfall, Odd Man Out, The Bling Ring and Trance. The Bling Ring was a good guess because I do really love that film I, I do too like it didn't do well did it either yeah I feel like it got very maligned and I, I really enjoy I think Emma Watson is perfect so perfect in that mm. just playing that absolutely spoiled <laughs> but sort of sincere character mm. but I just gotta be Red Shoes I just love it. Yeah, me too. Because I was a ball- like I was a ballet kid, so why are you? Yeah, I was very, very into ballet when I was a child. See, I remember that thing of a Saturday afternoon, and there always being like old movies on the TV on a Saturday afternoon, and growing up and coming back into my room in the afternoon and and waiting to see, not knowing what was on, and kind of just switching on to watch. And I love the fact that the Red Shoes is on BBC Two, ten to one in the afternoon on Saturday afternoon. It just kind Perfect of time exactly. Just sit down and watch those kind of absolute classics. Tell you what was really amazing is I was lucky enough to speak to uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, who was married to Michael Powell um, when she won the fellowship earlier this year at the BAFTAs and just getting her to talk about this film and how it was a massive influence on Scorsese as well was just incredible. I think he says it's this in the river that he says are the best Technicolor films Mm. ever made. If you haven't seen it, it's... Powell and Pressburger at their absolute best from 1948 and it's on at 10 to 1 in the afternoon on Saturday on BBC Two. Uh, TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Here's your choices. Piranha, 3 double D. Dumb and Dumber 2, Pearl Harbor, The Vatican Tapes. <laughs> the choices this week, eh? Chris says on Twitter, TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Those are four awful films. Pearl Harbor takes the title for A, being really expensive to make and B, having a whole song dedicated to how bad it is in Team America World Police. Yes. Brilliant, forgot about that. Uh, Taffy's on Facebook, Pearl Harbor, has Kate Beckinsale delivering the line, you're leaving? When she sees Ben Affleck packing his suitcase. What was the response like to be, no, I'm just packing this suitcase for the sake of it, Kate. Jay Hilland on Twitter, Dumb and Dumber has to be uh, the choice. Piranha 3 D knows it is bad, but has that Hasselhoff cameo. Uh, Beck Parmeter on Facebook, I loved Dumb and Dumber. I was 14 when it came out. Saw it at the cinema twice, had the VHS and subsequent DVD. Quoted it all the time. I adored the soundtrack. I had the right balance between humour, grossness, innocence and sweetness. And I still enjoy the film now. I couldn't stomach 15 minutes of the second one. 
Teddy Ann O'Neill on Twitter. Once me and my cousin, both single at the time, watched Piranha 3 D on Valentine's Day. Possibly the lowest point of both of our lives. Don't worry, things have picked up since. Oh, good. Where are you going with? <laughs> oh, Pearl Harbor because of the South Park song. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I miss you more than Michael Bay, Mr. Mark, when he made Pearl Harbor. Yes, I love that I love song. That you know it. <laughs> uh, right then, that is your TV movie of the week. Uh, let's move on to another review. What are we going to do now? Uh, Angry Birds movie two. Yeah. Which doesn't seem like it should exist, but it's here. And to be honest, it's really not that bad. I quite enjoyed it. Awesome. And I think that was pretty true of the first film. Both times I went in thinking, oh, this is going to be utterly soulless corporate product because it's based off an app store game of all things. And I think both times I was surprised by how actually entertaining it is. The pace is high energy enough that I think kids will stay very well distracted. But it's also funny enough that I laughed a good number of times so the world of Angry Birds has two is two islands in this world, Bird Island, where the birds live, and Piggy Island, where mm-hmm. the pigs live. And in the first film, they're enemies because the pigs tried to steal the eggs of the birds. So now they're in a prank war, which in the game is just birds fleeing themselves at pigs. Eggs, yeah. That's the game. Here, it's a bit more developed. There's um, having hot sauce projectiles and a giant magnifying glass and balloons filled with crabs. But then the leader of the pigs, Leonard, voiced by Bill Hader, realises that that there is, in fact, a third island, which is covered in ice and home to a bunch of eagles, led by Zeta, voiced by Leslie Jones, who is tired of the cold and wants to take over the two other islands so that she can get some sun and sand. And so the the birds and the pigs have to join forces against a new common enemy. (laughs) And if that sounds a little weird, you are correct. It is quite a weird film. But I think that is its biggest strength. The script by Peter Ackerman, Ayo Padel, Jonathan E. Stewart it takes this quite simple story in a few surprising directions. Yes, there are the pratfalls and the silliness that you would expect, but also there are some quite surreal and quite dark jokes yeah. that I think are niche enough that they'll go over the kids' heads. My favourite part was this side plot with the three little hatchlings, the little babies, and their leader, Zoe, who's voiced by Brooklyn Prince, again, from The Florida Project. It's a great week for people in that film. <laughs> um, and they're so cute. There's a clip just to show how cute they are. Hey, Daddy. Ooh, just following my sisters for a minute. Ha! Now we really have all your eggs. Yeah! And there's nothing you can do about it, Red. Oink, 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 oink. Laugh it up, piggies, because you're going to be crying in a second when I take your butts and take all your... That's a clip from Angry Birds Movie 2. Back to the tiny fluffy birds. <laughs> So yeah, the little hatchlings go on this, they have all these weird, ridiculous adventures that have an almost wily coyote style flavor to them. They have, they get into terrible peril, but they always manage to come out the other side fine. And I think the Looney Tunes comparison isn't totally unmerited because it has that same kind of manic energy, which I think is helped by the fact that the director is Thurit Van Orman, who has a history with kids TV. He worked on the Powerpuff Girls, mm-hmm. which has also pretty high energy. And then you have this incredible cast. You've got Returning cast members, Bill Hader, Jason Sudeikis, Josh Gad, Danny McBride, Maya Rudolph, Peter Dinklage, Tony Hale. And then the newcomers are pretty much everyone who's 
blown up in mainstream comedy in, in recent years. Leslie Jones, Aquafina, Tiffany Haddish, Haddish, Rachel Bloom. Plus, there are a few celebrity kids in there. There's Nicole Kidman's daughter, Viola Davis's daughter, Gal Gadot's daughter. Uh, and it does do that annoying thing in children's film where it has to name check a bunch of cultural trends like dabbing and the song Turn Down for What?, Ed, there's also a constant onslaught of recognisable songs, including two that we already heard this year in Detective Pikachu, which I think is quite ironic considering I feel like we've moved on from Angry Birds, right? We're more on to Pokemon Go and I guess the Harry Potter one now, Wizards Unite. Uh, And so I feel like this film does deserve credit for being so fun, even though the entire franchise is sort of teetering close to extinction. Sounds. I mean, I, I think with these films, what's so important is not taking themselves too seriously and the acting talent they have doing the voices. Yeah. And Jason Sudeikis, Josh Gad and Bill Hader and Danny McBride, actually, for me, um, anytime. And so good. Tony Hill, who just has yeah. maybe three lines in this. <laughs> but but he's yeah, great. <laughs> totally memorable. Yeah. So thumbs up then. Thumbs up. Nice. I don't know why I keep saying thumbs up today. So I'm on a Paul McCartney double thumbs up day. I don't know what that is about. There we go, Angry Birds movie two. Um, we got time for a couple of other small ones before we finish. What are we going to do first? Should we do Charming? Let's do it. So this is the first film out of the newly created animation production company 3QU Media, which was co-founded by John H. Williams, who is the co-producer on the first Shrek film. And that is basically what this film is trying to be. It promises to untold the untold true story of the most famous prince the world has ever known, revealing that the princes of Snow White, Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella's stories are all the same guy, a Mr. Prince <laughs> Philippe Charming, voiced by Wilma Valdemera. But he has a major problem because his charmingness actually comes from a curse that was placed on him as an infant by his father's spurned lover, who is speaking in this clip. He'll be a little heartbreaker, just like his daddy. In fact, no maiden who gazes into the eyes of the prince will be able to resist his smile. She will believe that the prince is her true love. One by one, he will steal the heart of every maiden in the land. Heartbreak will reign. And when the sun sets on his 21st birthday, this charming curse will be sealed. And on that day, all love will disappear forever. Which I, yeah, the idea that every woman who looks into his eyes uh, falls instantly in love is aggressively heteronormative, but there we go. Uh, So he decides to try and undo this curse by deciding who is the woman that he is in love with. And he's engaged to these three princesses and, and trying to figure out which one. But then... A complication occurs when he bumps into jewel thief Lenora, uh, voiced by Demi Lovato, who's had a tough life and so she's locked her heart away and is immune to Philippe's charms. It's really working from the Shrek playbook, uh, which is this contemporary twist to old fairy tales. For example, the three princesses are all these sort of spoiled, haughty valley girl types voiced by High School Musical's Ashley Tisdale, Avril Lavigne and Chinese... Avril Lavigne? Avril Lavigne. And a Chinese pop star gem, which is a great array of voices. And it is a musical, but they're just pop songs that have been sort of crammed into the narrative. The princesses sing a song called Trophy Boy that I 
I'm not really sure has anything to do with the plot. Is it a remake of Skater Boy by Avril Lavigne, but just with Trophy Boy replaced from Skater? It does sound like that, actually. It's like, Trophy Boy, Trophy Boy. Amazing. So possibly, yes. <laughs> and it, it it tends to deconstruct the old fairy tales a little bit. So Cinderella remarks that she's the only girl in the entire kingdom with a six and a half shoe size. And it's one of those films that I think skates really close to outright copyright violation because there are a lot of elements of this that really just seem very similar to sort of Disney or DreamWorks pictures that have come before. I think the character Philippe really looks like Flynn Rider from Tangled and he does that smile that's just like the the let me here comes the smolder thing from Tangled. And then there are just two second appearances from Belle, Jasmine and Ariel, which are clearly just the Disney princesses, haven't been altered. It's not a parody, they're just there. Which there's pretty much only one sequence in this film that actually feels original, which is when they get captured by a tribe of giant cannibals who have elongated limbs and pointy teeth, but the way that they're depicted, unfortunately, it's a lot of body paint and sort of uh, neck rings. So it makes them look like a very weird stereotype of indigenous tribes. So it's a little bit, mm. ugh. but then that is the only original bit. And there's one character that's voiced by Sia. So you do just get a Sia song in the middle, which is quite nice, but not really worth that entire sequence. Yeah. And so there's nothing aggressively bad about it. It just feels like you're watching echoes of other movies. What's the long-term plan with this as a new animation house then? Do you know? Is it kind of... Do, do you know what the kind of future productions or where they plan to go with it? No. Like, no, they, they're not, they've not really announced too much. Because it's such a hard wor- world to try and, I guess, penetrate and, and do something different. And, um, you know, Kubo and the Two Strings under Laika and what they're doing, I think, are doing something really different with, with the kind of animations that they've done. But to be able to kind of come into that animated world and make a statement with something different, I imagine it's so hard. Yeah, but I think the problem with this film is that it's not even trying, trying. to mm. make one. It's just like, oh, what were the bits from Shrek that were good? And then, then let's put this character from this Disney movie and this character from this DreamWorks. Let's just get the kids distracted and watching this film. It just doesn't take any risks, which is what is so great about Laika, is that mm. they actually go out there and they take these enormous risks. Yeah. And they don't always pay off at the box office, but at least you're getting something really interesting and original. Yeah, Missing Link, which is out on Missing Link. DVD. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Interesting. I've, with it being some holidays, we've been watching a lot of films. Like we've been delving into DVD collection. We watched Shrek one and two in the past couple of weeks. They totally stand up. Incredible. Absolutely brilliant films. Puss in Boots is a oh donkey, incredible animated character. I love so Puss in Boots. Good. And in the morning, I'm making waffles. One of my favourite lines ever. Oh, again, going back to that casting of the voices are so important when it comes to those things. Yeah, that is. They the make other those thing. lines quotable. They make them memorable. All that kind of thing. Okay, um, one more. What are we going to do? Photograph. Mm-hmm. So this is directed by Ritesh Batra, who um, is most well known for 2013's The Lunchbox, which is a love story between two people I've never met but communicate solely through the notes in this titular lunchbox. Uh, Photograph is a similarly romantic premise. It had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival and then showed at the Berlin Film Festival. And it's a very, very sweet film that's not doing anything particularly revolutionary, but it's taking a familiar rom-com plot and then shooting it as an authentic straight drama. So the story is about Rafi, played by Nawazuddin Siddiqui, who's a photographer who takes pictures of tourists at the Gateway of India in Mumbai. 
and he bumps into a young woman named Miloni, played by Sonia Malhotra, who runs off before she has the opportunity to pay for the picture he took of her. And so he decides to print out another copy and send it to his grandmother, who's been badgering him to get married, and pretends that it's his girlfriend called Nuri. And then, uh-oh, the grandmother wants to visit, so he then has to track down Maloney and convince her to pretend to be his girlfriend. And you can kind of guess what happens next. But I think what is unique about this film is that Ritesh Batra omits a lot of the key scenes in this courtship. For example, we never see the moment that Rafi convinces Maloney to pose as his girlfriend. We never find out what he said, how she was convinced, and so we're left to fill the blanks. And instead it focuses on the in-between moments, the little moments, the moments where they actually get to connect as people. And I think their approach gives it this sense that they're just two people drifting through this situation. They never really stop to think about the implications of this ruse. And the performances of the two leads are just very subtle, very subdued. Um, and yeah, it's not it's not doing anything completely out there, but it's just very sweet and very romantic and very lovely. Mm. Jim in London said a title is appropriate as there are probably hundreds of points at which you could press pause and be looking at a very pleasing atmospheric photograph. Gentle, thoughtful film which I enjoyed very much. So there we go. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Clarice, what's been your film of the week, my dear? Oh God, I don't know. Uh, I think... Animals. Okay. Let's do animals. Awesome. Go and see it then. Um, Listen, thanks for listening. We're very excited because just us talking off the back of Shrek 1 and 2, I'm going to be back next week, Robbie Collins, next Friday uh, at 3 with our very special guest, none other than Senor Antonio Banderas. Have yourselves a great weekend. I'll see you back here next Friday. So that was the show. It was. I mean, a lot of one-word films. Yeah, I don't... It's that weird when that happens. <laughs> it's really weird, especially when you have to list them. And you're going, hold on, wait a minute. It's kind of if you you could almost list them in quite an interesting order to make it sound like one film. All the different films make charming one. holiday photograph. There you go. Sounds like charming a animal holiday photograph. There you go. Here we go. Let's get your, the rest of your suggestions, please, and send them in to us. Now it's time though for DVD of the week. <laughs> So we post a list of forthcoming home entertainment releases on our social channels every Monday. This week's offers include Gloria Bell, Missing Link, The White Crow, Kiss Me Deadly, which gets a Criterion Collection release, and Alexander Cassini's Star Time, which is an angst-ridden study of violence, psychosis and media obsession. So before we hear from Clarice, let's hear what you have picked for a keeper, William Hill. Gloria Bell, a superb, moving performance from Julianne Moore on the challenge of middle-aged love. I agree, I absolutely flipping love this film. That's me, not William Hill. Sol Loredo has to be Missing Link. Not enough people saw this film at the time. Stu Egan has to be Kiss Me Deadly. Starts out as a superior twisty noir with plenty of hard-boiled Mickey Spillane dialogue before the plot goes off in an entirely unexpected and bleak direction towards the end. Completely fueled by atomic age or Cold War paranoia. Certain images have been copied many times since by filmmakers paying homage to director Robert Aldrich. It's well worth a watch. And Anne Hosey says The White Crow has the best line I've heard in any film this year. He didn't dance like a scientist. Here we go. (laughs) Domino, Gloria Bell, Kiss Me Deadly, Missing Link, Pets, Star Time, The White Crow. What is it going to be? Yeah, I think I I want to go with Kiss Me Deadly because I do. I love that ending. It's incredible because it is that thing that you you kind of get 
drawn into this film noir plot. And it's, I mean, it's 1955, so it's a little bit towards the end of the genre. Yeah. So it's a little bit different from like what you might be used to. But then that ending comes in and it's just, it, it goes suddenly, quite, I'm trying not to like ruin it, but it goes yeah. sci fi very suddenly. Okay. And it's just spectacular. And there are a few shots that have been really influential for Pulp Fiction and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. That's not giving too much away. Okay. But yeah, it's just that that ending is spectacular. I think about it all the time. Okay, Kiss Me Deadly, <laughs> and if not that, uh, I'd suggest Gloria Bell. Sebastian yeah. uh, Lillio's just, it's amazing. Julianne Moore and John Turturro on screen together. It's just, it's magic. Loved it. Um, brilliant. All right, well, listen, thank you so much for this week. Uh, I'll be back next week, as I said earlier, with Robbie and, um, oh, donkey, look at his wee boots. Puss in Boots, Antonio Banderas. BBC Radio 5 Live. <laughs> 